Good morning, everybody. How are you today? We're going to turn our eyes to Mark. We've been in an ongoing study this morning. Uh, we got a big text. In fact, we just read the end of chapter 8, but this morning we'll also be covering all of Mark chapter 9. So a couple things I want to say in way of preamble. The first one is this. Uh, because we're covering a large text, we're going to be moving really fast. And I'm a guy who talks fast anyway, but we're covering a big chunk of text. And what that requires, I feel fine about that for a couple of reasons. The first one is uh, that even if I were to slow down and take my time, it I wouldn't exhaust everything that's here. And so I, I don't want you to be frustrated if I move past something you would like to dig into more. The great news is there are all kinds of resources for you yourselves to dig more into the text. It's why we're reading the, the book of Mark together. In fact, there's a, a card in the seat back in front of you if you want to be part of that reading program. But if you have things in this text that you think, man, I wish you would have spent a little more time, I wish you would have talked about this a little bit more, number one, I'm happy to have a conversation with you, but better even than talking with me about my opinions on that particular thing would be for you to make a note in your Mark journal and go, I'm going to come back to this this week and I'm going to dig in a little bit deeper and I'm going to study a little bit more. If you're looking for resources, commentaries, that kind of thing, uh, for your own personal study, the book of Mark, I'm happy to give you some recommendations of things I love, uh, but, but I don't want you to fear like, there is never a time when we're covering the whole thing, but what I want you to see at the end of eight and in nine is the through line. So here's the second thing I want to say by way of preamble. It's that sometimes Mark 9 gets taught in kind of these disconnected sections. So as we read it, you'll see some of them and you'll be like, oh, I've heard the story of the transfiguration or I've heard this thing that Jesus says about poking out your eye or chopping off your hand or I've seen this thing about the, you know, whatever. There, there are these different stories and if they're pulled out of context... They can be taught with a point of application that isn't wrong because it lines up with the rest of the Bible, but it sort of misses the point of what's happening in the flow of the actual text. Does that make sense? So as we walk through the end of 8 and 9, what I want you to be paying attention to is the way that Mark has assembled these stories in order to emphasize and re-emphasize and re-emphasize the same broad general point which is vital to our discipleship. So as we begin this morning, I've gone back and we've read a little bit of 31 and following, which we covered some of that last week. Let me just set the stage for you, right? At the end of chapter 8, if you were here last week or if you studied it on your own, you'll remember that Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, what's the word on the street about me? Like, what are people saying? What, what, what's, uh, who do people think I am? And the disciples go, eh, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're Elijah. Some people say you're one of the prophets. And Jesus calls the question, he says, okay, I get that there are various opinions about me, but what do you say, right? And we talked about it last week, but Peter nails this. He says, we know who you are. You are the Christ, right? You are the son of the living God. You're the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. Bing, 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 right? He gets it right. And, and we could celebrate the fact that he acknowledges and recognizes who Jesus is. That's a, a turning point in the ministry of Jesus, especially as we see it in the book of Mark. After they acknowledge that he's the Messiah, the conversation of Jesus takes a bit of a turn, and we'll see that there at the end of 8 and all throughout 9 and going forward. But he begins to talk to them about his own death. He begins to talk to them about his uh, false accusations against him, about his arrest. He talks to them about his resurrection. And he also, in no uncertain terms, informs them that to follow him will mean suffering for them as well. He hasn't done a lot of that kind of talk prior to chapter 8 where Peter says you're the Messiah. Now that Peter has acknowledged that he's the Christ, Jesus turns and he begins to explain to them what that means. Because immediately, uh, as Jesus talks about his death, and you'll see why this is important, Jesus says to them at the end of 8 that the Son of Man will be arrested, he will be falsely accused, he'll be thrown into jail, he'll be crucified and rise again. 
right after that, Peter, the guy who knew, correctly identified him as the Messiah, Peter pulls Jesus aside. Imagine the audacity of that. But he pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus. Essentially, he says, man, we don't want to hear all that talk about jail time. We don't want to hear all that stuff about suffering. We don't want to hear all that stuff about sacrifice. We just acknowledge you're the Messiah. Let's talk about victory. Let's talk about conquering. Let's talk about setting up the kingdom, right? Peter had in his mind what it meant to be the Messiah, and what Peter viewed as being the Messiah had nothing to do with sacrifice. It had nothing to do with suffering. It had nothing to do with servanthood. So when Jesus talks about that, Peter feels like it's appropriate to say, knock off all that negative talk, right? And Jesus says, no. In fact, he goes, on, he goes on and we just read it. He says, get behind me, Satan. I don't know what Peter's diary looks like, but I imagine that's not a great entry, right? Where he's like, today Jesus called me the devil. You know, that's not awesome. But he essentially says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He says, you've set, your minds, uh, you've, you've set yourself on the mind of man rather than the mind of God. Let's read that together. Back in Mark chapter 8, uh, verse 33, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. The, the way you're talking is satanic, essentially, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That reminder or that admonition is important for the way we understand all of chapter 9. He says there are different ways to see your life and this world and the ways to see me and discipleship. And if you have your mind set on the things of this earth, you will misunderstand and be frustrated by what I'm doing. But if you have your mind set on the things of God, it will make more sense. He goes on to elaborate here. He says in, in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now for us, when we hear this phrase, take up his cross, that's fairly common. We hear people talk about, you know, that's my cross to bear or whatever. In the first century, number one, they wouldn't have thought about the crucifixion of Jesus because that hasn't happened yet, right? So when we talk about taking up your cross, maybe you picture Jesus, these disciples would not have made that association because this is the first time he talks about the cross in Mark and it's one of only just a couple times that he talks about it, right? They wouldn't have made that association. For them, when Jesus says take up your cross, the only association they would have had is that the Romans had perfected crucifixion as the way to most successfully torture and humiliate their most heinous criminals or those who were most opposed to Rome. So when Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, you have to deny yourself, you have to lay down your life, you have to take up your cross, they wouldn't have thought of it in simple terms. They wouldn't have thought of it in light terms. It wouldn't be like, you know, when we talk about, oh, you know, Netflix went up by three bucks this year. We're like, well, I guess that's my cross to bear, you know. Like it wouldn't have felt simple. It would have felt humiliating. It would have felt torturous. It would have felt shameful in an honor-shame culture, right? Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to lose your life. He says in 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He says, again, you're thinking like men instead of thinking like God. You have the mindset of this sort of temporal world instead of the, the mindset of the eternal. He says, let's say you strove and strove and strove and you gained all these temporal things. You got wealth and you got power and you got influence and you controlled all of your land. What difference would that make when your life is gone? All of those things are temporary. We've talked in here before about the fact that most of the things we chase after wind up in the dump or the graveyard. He says, what good is it for you to collect all these temporal things and lose your soul? He says in verse 37, for what can a man give in return for his soul? 
Whoever's ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He says, if you're thinking in a temporal way, you will miss out on the truth of what I am heralding. And when I come in that eternal glory, like we, we won't be together in that, right? He's saying you have to die to yourself. He's saying you have to take up your cross. And he's not just saying it to those disciples. By extension, he's saying it to all disciples. The question that we find at the end of Mark chapter 8 for all of us who are followers of Jesus, and I acknowledge that there are some of you in the room who are followers of Jesus. There are some of you who are kind of on the fence about that. Maybe you have been a follower of Jesus and you're not sure anymore. Or maybe you're interested in being a follower of Jesus, but you're not sure what that means. Then there are some of you in the room who would say, no, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I came in here to figure out what that might mean, right? So there's a variety of people in here. But for those of you who are followers of Jesus, you absolutely, when you read Mark chapter 8, have to ask yourself the question he's asking. If you call yourself a follower... Are you following him? The title of my message today is Followers Follow, right? It's really easy to sing that old children's song that says, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, right? But do you really think about where he goes and where he calls you to go, right? For us, it is an invitation to follow him and lay down our lives, to take up our cross and humiliation and suffering. That's the invitation. So you might call yourself a follower, but are you following him? Have you set your mind on the things of God, or have you set your mind on the things of this earth? Have you set your mind on the temporal, or have you set your mind on the eternal? Because the way you answer that question will inform the way you live, right? We sort of understand collectively that Jesus calls us to lay down our lives, and yet we spend a lot of time trying to pick up pieces of it back up. You know what I mean? Like we go, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus says die to yourself. I know Jesus says take up your cross. I get it, I get it. But like, there's gotta be like a little bit of self-confidence, right? There's gotta be like a little bit of like pride that like, I can still hold on to, right? I remember um, when my, uh, my wife tells a story about a time when Jack, my oldest son, was really little and they were riding in the car and there was a guy in the car next to them that was smoking a cigarette and my son had never noticed this before. And by the way, this isn't exactly a cigarette positive story, but, uh, so don't, don't let your feelings get hurt. But I, um, they're driving and this guy's smoking and Jack goes, what's that? And she goes, well, that guy's smoking a cigarette. And my little boy, he goes, well, what's a cigarette? And she goes, well, it's got tobacco in it, you know, and people smoke it. And she goes, but the, Jack, you should never smoke a cigarette, right? You should never smoke one because it's not good for you. They're expensive. In fact, your grandpa, your great grandpa, Pete, he, he died because he smoked cigarettes his whole life. Like you should never smoke cigarettes because they're just really not good for you. It's a bad habit to get into. You should never do it, you know? And she's just, she's just doing her best. That, you know, she's doing her best to try and emphasize this to like a three-year-old or whatever. So she says, you should never smoke cigarettes. And it's quiet for a second after she says that. And then he goes, well, I think I'm going to try him just one time, right? <laughs> I think I'm going to try him just one time, right? That's so much like our lives, right? Jesus is going, lay down your life. Give up yourself. Deny all of your ambitions. Deny all of who you are and put on the mind of Christ, which lays himself down for the good of other people. And we go, yeah, yeah, but I'm just going to... I'm just going to, I mean, I can have a little pride, right? I can just have like one cigarette. What's the big deal, right? 
Jesus is saying to his disciples, you have to lay these things down, and they miss it. And what we see at the end of 8 and all through 9 are the ways in which these disciples continue to try and hold on to their own self-interest, the way they try and hold on to their own ambition. And it's instructive for us as we walk through it. So we're going to move fast, but I just want you to see it. Already we've seen it in the rebuke of Peter, right? Peter hears what Jesus says about suffering, and he's like, I don't want to hear that. That's not the idea I had in my head. Don't talk like that anymore. Well, what's Peter doing? Peter's speaking to his own desires. He's speaking to his own understanding. So already we see selfishness in Peter, right? Jesus says, lay down your life for my sake. It's not different than what it says in 1 John 2, verse 17, where it says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Prioritize the eternal over the temporal. Jesus is saying, if you want to be my follower, you have to follow me. And yet we always try to find a way to wiggle out of dying to ourselves. Now, he's just talked about his glory, the fact that he will come in his glory with his angels. And then as we turn the corner into Mark chapter 9, he says something really interesting in verse 1. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, that's a, a, a verse that's hotly debated. Does, what's Jesus talking about? Does it, you know, what does this mean? I think Jesus is setting up the transfiguration story. So he literally looks at his disciples and goes, I've just talked about the fact that I'm going to come in my glory, and some of you are going to get an appetizer of what that glory looks like in a couple of hours, right? It says uh, shortly after, look at verse 2, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. So he picks three of his 12 disciples, and he takes them up on top of the mountain. Here's where we see the story of transfiguration. He's already told them that there's a day coming when he'll come in his glory and that some of them will get a taste of that. Now he takes them up on the mountain, which by the way, mountains are important places in the biblical narrative. All kinds of cool things happen where God meets with his people on mountains, right? So Jesus takes these three disciples up onto a high place and then it says in verse two, he was transfigured before them. And if you go like, what does that mean, transfigured? It gives us a little hint, right? It says his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses as they were talking with Jesus, right? So Jesus begins to glow. Transfiguration, there's lots of theories and guesses. We're not going to get in the weeds on that today. But what happens is that Jesus looks intensely white, whiter than anybody would have been capable of bleaching his clothes at the time, and he begins to glow. It's not unlike, and in fact, there's some really interesting parallels between this story and the story of when Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, right? So we can lay these things beside each other. Again, we don't have the time for that. But what is Jesus doing here? He's showing Peter that his, uh, his, his profession, that Jesus is the Christ, is true, even though that means Jesus will suffer and so will his followers. He is the glorious one that Peter thought he was, right? So he pulls back the veil a little bit and he gives him a glimpse. And in fact, not only does Jesus begin to glow, right, with this sort of, uh, with this glory, but now Moses and Elijah are standing with him. Now the text doesn't tell us how Peter or Mark or anybody else knew that it was Elijah and Moses. I think this is an affirmation of what we've all wondered. They do make us wear name tags in heaven, right? So that's what's going on. It's got an Elijah name tag. Elijah and Moses are standing with Jesus. Jesus is glowing with this radiant uh, light, and it says they're talking to each other. Mark doesn't tell us what they talked about. Don't you want to know what they're talking about? I really want to know what they're talking about. But it says they're having a conversation. Jesus is giving them a glimpse of his glory, right? Even though he's a God who's called them to suffering and who will suffer himself, he's saying, I am who you think I am. And he gives them a glimpse of his glory. Now, in 
characteristic fashion by Peter, Peter who's watching this feels the need to include himself. Right? So let's read on here. Here's what happens. It says, There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Verse 5, And Peter said to Jesus, so imagine again the audacity of this, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, glowing Jesus, talking. Peter jumps in. Uh, excuse me if I may. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but can I just say a couple things here, right? Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. How's that sound, right? What's he doing? He, he doesn't know what he's doing. So it even says here, just so you see this. It says he says these things, verse 6. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Understandably, Peter, James, and John are kind of freaked out by what they're seeing. But rather than just sitting in it and observing it and trying to understand it, Peter feels the need to inject himself. Well, what is that? It, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a, a raising of Peter's own sort of self-importance, Right? There is a striving here where Peter jumps in and he goes, hey, I see you guys have a cool thing happening, but you know what would make it better? Me, right? You know what makes this little gathering of Elijah and Moses and Jesus even cooler? This guy. Let me jump in there. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build some tents. Now, we don't know if Peter is talking about building tents because he wants to prolong the experience. Some theologians say that. Some say that he's uh, incorporating pieces of Jewish festival practice, right? That it could have to do with the, the Feast of Tabernacles or whatever, that he's trying to build them these little shrines in some way. It doesn't really matter what Peter's intention was. This is an interruption that has to do with Peter injecting himself in a place Peter didn't need to go, right? He's talking in a place where he didn't need to speak. And what I love about this is something immediately happens. Verse 7. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him, right? What's essentially happening here? Peter's like, hey, it's really great to be here with you guys. It's really fun. I never met Elijah before. I was thinking maybe I'd put some tents up. And all of a sudden, a cloud comes, right? And God's voice says, this is my beloved son. Shh, right? Be quiet, Listen to him, right? Now, in one sense, what God is doing is he's quoting from a messianic prophecy of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18. So Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. In one sense, what God is doing there in Mark chapter 9 at the transfiguration is he's fulfilling that prophecy, right? That God shows up and says, listen to him. But I think more importantly, what he's saying is, you don't have anything to add, right? You don't need to build a tent. You don't need to say anything about the goodness of the moment. All you need to do is recognize that everything you need, you find in listening to Jesus. Immediately in this text, after that voice says, listen to him, suddenly, verse 8, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Moses and Elijah disappear. And what is being emphasized there is the preeminence of Jesus. That while Moses is a hero and Elijah is a legendary figure, that their voices and what they have to say and what they have to contribute are subservient to the voice of Jesus himself. Right? It's not unlike what it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where it says, In the past, God spoke to us through a variety of different ways. But now, it says in verse 2, He has spoken to us through His Son. And what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is, There have been a lot of good voices, but this is the voice that trumps them all. When God says, This is my beloved Son, listen to Him. What He's saying is, Jesus has everything you need. 
right? There is something in this, and we won't go in the weeds on this today either, but there's something about this with regard to the trajectory that's saying the words of Jesus are more vital and important than what you find in, in the law and the prophets, right, with Elijah and Moses. Peter, even though he's been told to lay down his life, feels the need to inject himself. He feels the need to contribute his thoughts and ideas. And God's saying, we don't need that. All we need is for you to be quiet and pay attention to Jesus. Now, as they're coming down the mountain, uh, they do have a conversation about the prophecy about Elijah coming first. We're not going to spend a ton of time there. Jesus basically points at John the Baptist as this Elijah that would come first and that the people have already sort of gotten rid of, right? Then they come to this story in verse 14 about a demon-possessed boy, and, uh, and it, it's, going to, it's going to tell the same story in a different way. When they came to the disciples, this is Mark 9, 14. When they came to the disciples, uh, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Now remember, he'd taken three of his disciples. These are the other nine disciples. And the other nine disciples are having a discussion or an argument with some scribes, and there's a big crowd. Jesus walks up and he says, hey, what are you guys arguing about, right? Immediately all the crowd, verse 15, when they saw him were greatly amazed. That might be because his face is still glowing a little, some people suggest. They're greatly amazed and they ran up to Jesus and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast the demon out and they were not able. This is really interesting, right? They're having this argument. Jesus walks in and he goes, what's the argument here? And the man says, well, my demon-possessed son, he's got all these problems, and I'd heard about you guys, and so I brought him to your disciples, but they were unable to do anything about the demon. It's interesting because Jesus had empowered them to cast out demons. But in this particular case, they're not able to do that. And so we hear this groan of Jesus in some ways. Verse 19, he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And I don't want you to hear in this anger, right? We don't see Jesus as being impatient, right? But what we do hear is Jesus kind of groaning because the, the people around him just don't get it, right? And they brought the boy to him, verse 20, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it, was, it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help. I, I want to just as a little aside say, I love what the Father says here. He, he asks and calls not only for compassion, but for help. He sees them as two things that go together. I was struck as I was studying this last couple of weeks by the fact that I think often as Christians, we, we feel compassion for the suffering of other people, but we don't recognize that people don't just need our compassion, they also need our help. He articulates this really clearly. He says, if you can do anything about it, show compassion and help. Now, interestingly, Jesus catches not necessarily onto that, but he catches onto the, what the man says when he says, if you can help. And in fact, Jesus repeats that in a little bit of irony. It says in verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can, right? Like, you're talking to Jesus, right? So the man had said, if you can help, do something. Now, it's understandable why he felt that way. He'd already brought his boy to the disciples and they could do nothing. So he brings him to Jesus and he says, if you can do something, that would be a great help. But understand, he has a question about whether Jesus will be capable of doing what his disciples could not. Jesus says, if you can, he says, all things are possible for one who believes. Jesus is pointing at the fact that what is missing in this particular equation is faith Immediately, 24, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, 
help my unbelief, right? This gets quoted a lot, sometimes out of context. The man says, I believe, but my belief ain't perfect, right? Uh, My belief is sort of salted with doubt. It's kind of on again, off again. I love this prayer. I I just want you to notice something here. The prayer of this man, the prayer that says, help my unbelief, is itself a prayer of faith. That's a prayer of faith. I think sometimes we feel like if we acknowledge our doubts or we acknowledge our worries or we acknowledge the things we're confused about, that that's a faithless position. It is not. To say, I believe, but I don't have it all figured out. And in fact, there's some things I need your help with. That is a cry of dependence upon God. Jesus is illustrating in this particular story the difference between him and every other human being, including the people in the crowd, the demon-possessed boy, the father of the demon-possessed boy, and all of his disciples and all of us in the room. The difference between Jesus and everybody else, unwavering faith. Faith that is uh, never on again, off again. It's never got highs and lows. The faith of Jesus is consistent and true. But every one of us have moments of weakness. We have moments of selfishness. We have moments of doubt. And you're in a healthier spiritual place when you can be honest about that and say, I believe, but I need some help. You're in a more faithful position than those who would say, I got it all figured out and I don't have any doubts. Those are people who are lying to themselves and actually that's a posture of faithlessness. Immediately the father cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. The boy was like a corpse. So most of the people in the crowd were like, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Well, how come we couldn't do it? Now, here's another thing. Jesus has said, die to yourself. Live to me, right? Lay down your life. Pick up your cross. And yet here what we see is them grappling with like, we thought we had the power. We thought we had the influence. We thought we had the magical capabilities to get this thing done. So why didn't it work? And Jesus says something interesting. He says in verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. I don't want you to get distracted here. It's easy to get distracted by that verse. And the way we get distracted is when we go, oh, it seems to say that there are various types of demons and that some of them can only be cast out with smoke and some of them get cast out with holy water and some you have to use lasers or whatever, right? He's not distinguishing levels of demons here. What he's saying is that demons are only cast out by the power of God and not the power of man. Which indirectly says very clearly that whatever it is the disciples were doing, I don't know what they were doing. I don't know if they laid hands on the guy. I don't know if they put him on the ground. I don't know if they spit in his eyes. I don't know what they did. It doesn't tell us what they did. What it tells us they didn't do is pray. Right? Jesus says, oh, demons only come out with prayer. Which feels like a no duh to us. But what's happening? It's them taking back a little bit of their life. It's them going, you know what? We're the disciples of Jesus. It's kind of a big deal. You know, we could cast out demons. We could do some pretty cool stuff. Right? And Jesus goes, yeah, that doesn't work. Your power will not be influential. The only thing that works on a demon like this is you confessing your dependence to God for him to do what only he can. What we see here is faithlessness that's rooted in self-confidence that's misplaced. Mark Strauss helpfully says, and I'm quoting Strauss here, he says, we can accomplish anything when we honestly acknowledge that we can't accomplish anything on our own. 
right? We can accomplish anything when we honestly admit that we cannot accomplish anything on our own. Similarly, Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, For the sake of Christ I'm content with weakness, insult, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's in me owning the fact that I don't have the power, but God does. That the power is actually brought to bear. They go, why couldn't we do it? And he goes, well, you have to be dependent on God for this to work, right? Let's keep moving. We'll move quickly here. Jesus then repeats that he will die. It says in verse 30, they went from there and passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. If you have any question about whether Jesus knew he was gonna die and whether he knew he was gonna rise again, he, he absolutely did. That's what Mark is saying. But they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. When they come to Capernaum, verse 33, and he was in the house, he asked them, what were you guys talking about on the way? Right? What were you guys discussing? But they didn't answer. They kept silent. For on the way, the disciples had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Okay, so shortly after Jesus says, die to yourself, take up your cross, lay down your life to find it, these knuckleheads are having a conversation about which one of them was the greatest. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? And they're like, nothing. Baseball, you know, whatever. Jesus says to them, Verse 35, he sat down and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He says, you, you, you don't have the mind of God, you have the mind of this temporal world. He says, in this temporal world, kings and rich people and powerful people, they seem like the important ones. But in the kingdom of God, it's the ones on the margins. It's the ones who've been forgotten. It's the powerless. It's the weak. And it says Jesus took a child and he put them in the middle of their circle. Verse 36, he put them in the midst of them and taking them in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Jesus isn't uh, just demonstrating his love for children. We got a lot of songs about that too. He does love children. That's not exactly what he's saying here. What he's saying here, he's using children as an example of people who were essentially socially disregarded. They had no status, they had no power, they had no wealth, they had no say in anything. He takes this sort of outsider, this marginalized human being, and he puts this child in the middle and he goes, you want to receive me and by extension receive my father? You got to get your arms around the people on the outside. It's not the powerful people who are leading in the kingdom of God. It's those who are weak, right? Right? Jesus says the kingdom is not about being served, but serving. Embracing the marginalized and the outcast and the lowly is to know Jesus and to follow Jesus. It's their pride, their desire to be the greatest or the most powerful that once again is them doing what? Well, I just want to smoke one cigarette, right? I just want to take a little bit of my life back. Jesus says, no, you have to embrace those who are on the outside. And then, interestingly, this reminds John of something. Look at verse 38. Uh, it occurs to John, he goes, oh, you're talking about people who are marginalized or outsiders. He goes, that reminds me of a thing I was going to tell you. He says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. I love the irony in this, right? Just prior, the actual disciples were trying to cast out a demon and could not. And now John tells the story, well, we saw this other guy. He's not part of our club, but, you know, he's, he's casting out demons in your name. And we told him he's got to knock it off because he's not, you know, one of us. And Jesus is like, what? what what's happening here? Well, it's jealousy, right? It's wanting to hold on to our own position. It's wanting to hold on to our own specialness, if you will. 
the disciples see a, a person who's casting out demons in Jesus' name, and he's being successful at it, and they're like, hey, you're not part of the inside crew. You're not one of us. You shouldn't do that anymore. And Jesus responds. He says in verse 39, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. He might be younger than you in the faith. He might still be figuring some things out. He might not know everything you know. He might not have seen all the things you've seen. But if he's casting out demons in my name, he is advancing the kingdom. He is setting the captives free. He is putting the love of God on display. Don't get in his way. That's what we're here to do. Well, what would be the advantage, Jesus says, of stopping him? That's not good for him because he's a young person in the faith. That's not good for him. And it's not good for the battle we're in, right? Jesus says, don't stop him. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. He says, we can't be wrapped up in trying to go, hey, we, we can do this, but you can't do it. We understand it, but you don't understand it. We got to figure it out. I will tell you that part of what Jesus is speaking to here is one of the problems with denominationalism in churches. That we go like, no, our church kind of has it figured out, but the people outside our association, they're kind of a mess, right? And we look with suspicious glances. Jesus would go, no, if you see people that love Jesus and are caring for those who are hurting and advancing the kingdom of God, they're listening to me. Don't get in their way. They might see it a little bit different than you. They might worship a little bit different than you. They might dress a little different than you. Their worship services might be different, whatever. But if they love me and they're setting captives free, we're in the same battle and we're fighting on the same side. Don't stop them. It's not good for them and it's not good for the kingdom. And he goes on to illustrate that in a couple of really sort of drastic ways. He says in 42, whoever causes one of these little ones, and here, by the way, he's not talking about the child that he had in the midst. He's talking about this newish person in the faith who's casting out demons in Jesus' name but isn't part of their in-group. Jesus says this in 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and by that he means to, to walk away from the advance of the kingdom and instead to do their own thing? It's like if you're pushing him away from kingdom work, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And what follows is a series of illustrations. By the way, Jesus here is not talking about actual self-mutilation. Jesus is saying, if your eye, which is a good thing, causes you to, to work at counter purposes to the kingdom of God, get rid of your eye. And if your hand, which is a good thing, causes you to work at counter purposes of the kingdom of God, get rid of your hand. But you can't pull this text out of context. Jesus is saying, when you look at that guy who's casting out demons in my name, and he's successful at it, and you stop him, that's you taking a good thing, which is that you're my disciples, and that you've been following me, and that we've shared all these experiences together. You're taking a good thing, and you're using it for negative. You're using it for evil. You're using it to push that person towards disconnection with me. And instead, what you should be trying to do is draw them in. So here's the way Jesus says this. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go into hell, or Gehenna, which was the trash heap outside of Jerusalem, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He says, I, I don't know how to say this as a more stern warning. But to be headed to the kingdom of God is to be working in unity and in alignment with the voice and the heart of Christ. 
And if in your own selfishness and in your own pride and in your own independence and arrogance you're creating division, well, there's a severe consequence for that as you push people away from the kingdom to hold on to your little realm. He says, how does stopping them help the kingdom? If you disrupt the faithfulness of others because of your arrogance, you do great harm. Remove even otherwise good things that lead you and others down a path away from the one Jesus is leading you on. The other path leads to destruction and judgment. And then finally, finally at the end he talks a little bit about salt. He says in 49, everyone will be salted with fire. And the idea there is that it is going to be hard to follow me. But that fire or that difficulty will have a purifying effect. And it will happen to all of you. Don't be tempted to pick your life back up. Don't be tempted to pick back up your division and your pride and your arrogance and your self-satisfaction and your greed. Don't be tempted to pick back up these things. Lay them down and follow me. Followers follow. He says, salt is good, verse 50, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It's interesting, the translation in the ESV says, have salt in yourselves, which could almost be felt like an individualistic thing. Like he's saying, you need to be salty and you need to be salty and you need to be salty. But a better translation would be, have salt among yourselves. Or even better would be a translation that says, share salt, right? So what he's pointing at, it's almost redundant. He says, be at peace among yourselves. What he's saying is, in all of these temptations to pick back up a little bit of your selfishness and your pride and your arrogance and your division, your self-satisfaction, the way in which to be preserved from that and protected is to stay in unity by sharing preservative in community. There's advocation at the end of this by Jesus to say we need each other. We need to walk with each other. So in those moments where we're tempted to interrupt Jesus and Moses and say, you know what this situation needs? This guy. That we've got community that can go, maybe this is a good time to be quiet, Darren, and listen, right? That in those moments where we're tempted to silence somebody who's actually doing the work of Jesus in the name of Jesus, but not in the way that we like, that in community we could look at each other and go, maybe we leave that person alone. They're doing the work of God, and they're just doing it in a way that's different than ours. Right? He says, you will all be salted with fire, so share salt and hold on to peace. The reality is that unity allows us to find hope in the trials of laying down our lives rather than falling back into selfishness and greed and fear and striving and faithlessness and pride and jealousy and division, which we see all over this. Jesus said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you got to lay down your life. you got to take up your cross. you got to die to all that selfish stuff. And you got to live to me. Take off the mindset that looks at this temporal world as having any value. And instead look beyond that to the kingdom where I'm in my glory. And you will join me as we advance the kingdom together, Jesus says. Right? There's a call for us to not look at what Jesus has said and go, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm supposed to die to myself. I get it. I get it. But like, I can have a little bit of this stuff back. right? Just like Jack. I think I'm just going to have one cigarette. Jesus is saying, No. That's not what I built you for, and it's not what it looks like to be my follower. If you're my follower, then do it the way I do it. Would you pray with me? Jesus, it's a hard teaching, and it's why the disciples struggled with it. It's why we all struggle with it. I think our best course of action is to pray with the father of the son, of the, the father of the son who was possessed to say there are places where we're getting it right and there are places where we're getting it wrong and will you help us? We believe, help us in our unbelief. God, we thank you that you are patient with us and that you're gracious and that even in those moments where we inject ourselves unnecessarily, 
When we feel like our way is better than yours, that you love us still and you take us by the hand and you guide us to a place where we can be preserved by the difficulty of this life instead of driven back into our old selfish patterns. Thank you for your love and your grace. We all need it and we're so thankful for it. We pray for all of that in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.